Hello everyone, Simon Jacobson here. Welcome to another episode of Wednesday Night Live. This is a Wednesday class that I've been giving for many, many years, going back all the way to 1983, uh, the winter of 83 or 82 even. And as technology developed, we began doing this online. And of course, technology also offers us the benefit that you don't even necessarily know it's Wednesday night. There are people listening right now. For them, it's Thursday. Others, it's still earlier. And of course, it's all archived, so it's really timeless. And uh, it's a real honor to be able to share a few words, a real commitment here, my commitment, my life commitment, and uh, the Meaningful Life's commitment is to try to do everything possible to open up channels that we can recognize and discover and have the courage to express our unique voice, recognizing that each one of us is indispensable and has an irreplaceable contribution to make in this world. And we need each other like musical notes in a large cosmic symphony. That's in short. So we speak about topics that are both timely, relevant, and personally relevant. That's the real focus, meaningful relevant, resonating, and many of the questions and the type, the topics we choose are really today generated by yourself, people who listen, people who are engaged with us, who interact with us, and they suggest different topics. So we're speaking tonight about a topic which is um, a, something that isn't really spoken about much for the obvious reason, something most people would rather not speak about. And the title is, How to Come Back from the Dark Side. Now, the word dark side, as soon as you hear that, it's quite a foreboding tone, the dark side, the dark forces. And indeed, there are people who unfortunately have been uh, in some ways fallen prey to dark forces that control their lives. It may be difficult uh, people. It may be addictions and maybe people's own uh, simply depravity that they ultimately fall into, not always willingly initially, but ultimately comes down to a point where, where, I'm sorry, in the beginning it begins slowly, and then ultimately a place where you can't get out of the, the whirlpool, the quicksand of the darkness. So that's a more extreme situation. I want to share a story about that in a few moments. But... For the rest of us, and not everybody's in that to that extreme, everyone, every person, every one of us has our darker side. That's that ugly corner in your life, the ugly place that um, we choose and we don't want to really speak about much. When we are at our worst, when we are often most ashamed of. So we all have those skeletons in our closet that, that are the shadows of a person's life. So, of course, the big question is, what value is there in talking about this? Talking about something that um, we are loath to expose. And the answer is that we're not talking about it because we like to talk about sensational darkness or something that is uh, titillating or just mysterious. But we're talking about it for a very important reason, because we want to figure out a way, how do we get out of that place? For those that are caught up in, in a very serious way, how do you get? How do you come back from the dark side? And for those of us who have perhaps milder forms of it in our own way, what do you do with it? 
Is it something you have to live with? Is it something that you can come to terms with? Can you actually understand it better and really, in a way, redeem it and free yourself from these haunting uh, skeletons, from these ghosts, from these haunting memories and experiences that often lurk in, as I said, in our darkest little corners and crevices? And that's what we'll be talking about. Now, why is it not spoken about? For precisely the reason most people don't want to go there. It's just simply too embarrassing, too humiliating, too shameful. It's like our little secrets that we carry. But often can also be a toxic force. Not often, I would say always if it's a secret, because it eats away at us in a certain way. It's like saying, no matter what's going, well, going on well, good in our lives, we always say, well, you know what, if you really knew who I was, if you really knew what I did, if you really knew what I, what, what I am, am I worst when I'm bored or when I'm really in a very difficult place or a dark place or a depressed place, you wouldn't think of me so highly. And you hear that when people speak openly sometimes about themselves. So it's not an area that very many of us want to go there. That's why it's called a shadow. That's why it's called dark. That's why it's called a skeleton because it's like we'd rather bury it and not address it. But I will address it because it's very much part of life. And just like light is part of life, so is darkness. And as you are familiar probably with my approach here, I do not hesitate and retreat from discussing things that are sometimes a little more com- uncomfortable because it's all part of the human condition. And we could dissect it. We could actually dissect the abyss and come away realizing that it's not as scary as it may seem from a distance or when you don't talk about it. And you can actually transform it. You can learn to channel and harness that power in that darkest abyss, that darkest crevice, that darkest corner, what called some of us call the ugly part of ourselves, and turn it into a tremendous force for growth and for goodness and for light. And that's what we will be addressing. Now, it's not an accident. This is coming right off Hanukkah, where we spoke about last week the idea of bringing dark light, light out of darkness. But frankly, it's really a theme that's all year round, and is with us all the time. So I hope I can do justice to speaking about this with the right sensitivity, at the same time coming away with something that empowers us and gives us strength as we move forward in our lives, where we can free ourselves from that weight. It's an invisible dead weight of these lurking corners that wait for us, sometimes when we're at our worst. So let me begin with something that was its own, it had its own... I wouldn't say traumatic, but it had a dramatic effect on me. I was a lot younger, and I remember I was once invited to a friend's home in Brooklyn who had, he said, you need to come over because there's a group of people staying by me, and they need your, they need your light, the way he put it. They need your insight. Now, he gave me no clue. It was very vague. He probably knew that if he told me the details, I may not show up. So I came at his request. I come. And yes, lo and behold, I come up the driveway, I park my car, and I see literally a caravan of maybe four Rolls Royces, one Maybach, I mean, these very expensive cars. I saw what almost looked like a a bunch of Saudi Arabian princes or something that had parked their caravan there. And I come into the house, and there is a fellow by the name James from Colorado, and he's a guru that heads a cult a cult. And I could see he has a hold over the people that were there were people part of his group. 
and with some women, some men, some children. You know, right away, to be very honest, I felt very uneasy. I felt a, uh, a very uh, toxic force right there in the room. Just they rubbed me the wrong way. Um, and this James was very intelligent, very gentle, but I saw something going on, something demonic, actually. He had like a demonic hold on the people. I saw how they treated him, you know, not like in a, the, the way you would treat a human being. It was like a blind acceptance of like, like almost slave worship of this uh, guru of theirs. And I understood why I was invited by my friend who was friendly with some of these people and he was hosting them. So I come there and I'm sitting and talking and trying to have a conversation with James and he's very glib, very smart, very shrewd. You know, I asked him some questions just to get a feel and I saw that he had it all figured out. He was able to very strongly emotionally and spiritually manipulate these people. It was very clear to me. Not that I always give people the benefit of the doubt, but then you pick up when you see how people interact. You know, it was just not a healthy situation here. And um, so then I, I, I just, by instinct, I started speaking about, you know, the difference between men and women. And uh, in a sense, and there was someone actually in the room that was also a friend of ours who was very smart, a very shrewd, intelligent businesswoman. And she started speaking about the dignity she feels like a queen when she studies Judaism and Kabbalah and Hasidic thought. And you can see right away, it didn't rub this guy the right way. And he began pontificating. But let me tell you what happened next. Part of the group, this James himself was not Jewish, which is fine with me. You know, they're spiritual people, beautiful, refined people I meet of all faiths and no faiths, of different Jews and non-Jews alike. But here there wasn't a Jewish issue. It was that he had this, this hold on these people. And then I saw one of the kids that walked by. I saw that he was missing an eye. And later I was told that it was due to a, t- a, t- a, a tantrum that this guru had, and he ultimately knocked out his eye. I'm not going to go through the gory details, the sexual orgies and the other stuff that was going on in this cult, things that I don't even want to repeat, but it was dark. It was one of my only experiences of really seeing the dark side. How a human being was manipulating others for his own benefits, his own pleasures, financially, sexually, and other things. And, um, and they were completely blinded by it. Now, I was there. I wasn't going to suddenly just walk out. I realized I had nothing. I'm not going to debate this fellow. Because I, I even asked him, I said, so how do you deal with the Jewish holidays for the Jews in your group? So he says, you know something, Passover, so that everyone keeps eight days of Passover. We kept 14 days. You know, in other words, we made it even more spiritual. So then I, you know, everyone has their Achilles heel. So what I did was, and I'm just sharing the story, not so much relevant to our discussion, just to tell you what, what I said to him. So what do you think about anti-Semitism? And here, suddenly I saw. She said, look, I'm against all forms of racism. There's anti-Italians, anti-Hispanics, anti-Muslims, anti-Jews. And every form of it is not appropriate, not, is all despicable. Now, anyone who, um, who hears that as Jewish right away, it alerts you, the red flags go up. Like someone starts equating it with other forms of racism, not to minimize the other forms, there's some things I said to him, don't you think the Jews suffer a little more than others, especially in the last century? And he really minimized it. So one of the Jewish fellows in that group heard that. And I saw there was a little chink in his armor because he recognized suddenly that this guy is like, something's off. 
And later I heard, a few weeks later, a few months later, that this fellow and his wife and children left the cult. I don't know if that was the moment, but it was definitely a contribution. The point I really want to make is I felt that darkness. I felt the darkness of a human being. And he may have been brilliant. and may have been very spiritually evolved. But he was using it for his own gain. And there's a darkness to that because he was controlling other people, not empowering them, not letting them be independent and individuals. But he was doing it in a smart way. It was like, connect to me and you will experience enlightenment, emancipation. But the price you pay is slavery to him. And that's exactly why you realize that in the Torah and Judaism talks about the great prohibition of idolatry, worshiping an idol. could be a human idol as well. It's basically worshiping something that's created instead of worshiping the creator. Instead of sublimating and submitting to something that's beyond existence, it's worshiping something within existence. So for all practical purposes, it's just an extension of existence. It was dark. Let me tell you, it was dark. And I really wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. Not that I felt I could be trapped, but I felt contaminated. I really did feel almost defiled and violated just by the whole energy. And it was one of the few times that I experienced it. But then there were different people who told me who were involved in things in certain areas of the occult and others that also experienced a lot of dark energy. Not always destructive, but it's dark because it has some type of demonic hold. And once it, it hypnotizes you in that way, it's very, very powerful. Now, of course, hopefully most of you listening to this um, are not necessarily ever were involved or experienced that or tasted of it. But I'm mentioning it because we're talking about coming back from the dark side. I don't want to ignore the more extreme variations of this. And we'll be talking about that as well. I'll be primarily focusing, however, as I said earlier, on the dark corners of each of our lives, because we all have it in some form or fashion. There are extreme forms, as I just mentioned, but then we all have it in a certain microcosmic, more subtle forms of it. So let's analyze. What is this, this dark thing? You know, let's define, I went back psychologically, it's the areas of life that you feel ashamed about, humiliated, little dark secrets in your life. Very often it's associated with sexual stuff. For some reason, that has a lot of shame associated with it because it touches the deepest parts of our soul, and when it, we feel it's not being experienced in a healthy way, there's something about it that causes us to feel guilt, ugly, something wrong with us. And how, of course, dark sides are of all sorts, the little sins that we do, and this is going to be between you and yourself, between you and God, between you and others. So I'm not going to go through every dark corner and every possible skeleton that a person may have, but let's analyze what is this exactly. Are we born with this? Are we born with a dark corner in our lives? Now, when you look at young children, I always use that as a specimen, so to speak, because that's the purest form of us, as we are before we are touched or tainted and affected and distorted by life, society, and man-made machinations and disappointments and uh, critique and all that comes with the wear and tear of life. You look at newborn children, or even young children, you don't sense an uh, element of darkness there. I mean, every child has their fears of the dark, and every child has their maybe inhibitions, but they're not necessarily seen as some dark demonic force in a person's life, something the child should be ashamed of. Children, frankly, have no shame. They're not ashamed of their sexuality. They're not ashamed of their nakedness. <clears throat> and for good reasons. They have no reason to be ashamed. They did nothing wrong. 
When did Adam and Eve feel ashamed when they suddenly sinned? And then they said they suddenly felt naked. It's like someone saying, I suddenly feel naked. Feeling naked is a form of self-consciousness that only comes when there's something to be self-conscious about. But when you're in a fish in water, you're just doing what you, have to, what you were created to do, what's there to be ashamed of. And shame also associated with others. There could also be shame with yourself. Shame, ashamed of yourself. So where does this, this the birth, the genesis of this dark shame come from? So in most cases, we, one could argue that it's not something inherent in our spirits or souls. I say most cases because I'll, I'll give some exceptions in a moment. Something that we pick up in life when our parents, the early adults in our lives, meaning the adults that are early on in our lives, I should say, are ashamed, carry a dark secret, carry a chip on their shoulder or some other form of some darkness, that projects. We sense it. And we pick up on it. And sometimes we assume that attitude that they have. So that's the most, the usual, most usual suspect of all, our parents. It can come from friends. It can come from school, from teachers and educators. And it comes from the street. Today, with social media, all types of things are passed on, just like a virus, just like a, uh, an, 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 a, uh, something that, we are, um, that is contagious, that spreads. So the same thing, attitudes spread. The, the, the first time we hear a dirty joke, the first time we hear a dirty word, the first time we sense a certain element that we should be hiding, something's wrong. All these things accumulate, and then what starts growing is this cancer that becomes this dark corner. Sometimes it's due to an appropriate experience, being touched inappropriately, and not knowing how to get out of it. And that becomes a memory that's etched in your brain, in your it's etched in your memory forever and ever. Years and years later, I hear people speak to me, think 60, 70 years that happened. It wasn't even necessarily so traumatic, but these things have, when they touch the sexual part of a person, they touch the more intimate parts of who we are, there's something that remains that does not go away. So what you see from that, that there are parts in us, like, you know, someone, you get a cut when you're two years old and your finger like this, you may not, never remember it, even if it's a, even if it's a deeper cut. You may get a slap, you may get, you may fall down. These, they don't stay etched inside our psyches. But things that happen in the more intimate level of our lives, the deeper, the deeper it touches, and sexuality is probably one of the deepest, these things don't go away. Bullying is another version. When people humiliate you in a consistent way, these things remain with you because it becomes something you carry inside of you that becomes a source of humiliation. You may try to hide it. You may try to compensate for it. So all the, all the above and whatever other form it takes are all man-made. They're not, it's not innate or inherent. Why I mentioned an exception, there may be, look, just like some people are born with different diseases, there could be a, depress, a, a, a gene, a, depress, a depression gene, so to speak, a genetic pre, uh, predisposition or inclination to a darker and more... Um, somber, or I'd say, I would say despondent type of nature. But that doesn't necessarily equate to a dark corner. It just means there's some people who are more, uh, not just laid back, not, and not just more low-key, but have a darker side, a darker way of looking at things. Can I say it's inherent? I would suggest if it's inherent, it probably will not be so full-blown unless it's exasperated and, 
and fed and nourished by insecure forces around you, and then combine that with a natural predisposition and inclination to, to being more, seeing things more pessimistically, that can turn into something that's a lot darker. But I'm not going to go through an analysis of all the forces that cause it to be, because suffice it to say, there are forces. Many of them are usually projected upon us from others or life experiences. Because obviously, a person, for example, experiences a loss, the loss of a parent at a young age, God forbid, or some other trauma. So if they have a good support system and a family that helped buffer and help them grow through it, it's one thing. But if they didn't, these experiences can throw you off and create yet another side to you, which is a deeper insecurity, a deeper fear, a deeper sense of loss, where you feel like you lost your bearings, and that also in turn creates a darker side. Now, some of us will act out on that darker side, we'll find outlets, behavior that's self-destructive, behavior that's even self-abusive, allowing ourselves to be used and abused by others, deliberately or, uh, or passive-aggressively, whatever the way it would be, or acting out even further by doing things that may be even harmful. There's cutting oneself, there's allowing oneself to be used sexually or in other ways. All these are a result of a type of low self-esteem that's coming from this darker place where you almost feel you deserve not to be treated well, and then you feed off the self-defeating prophecy, and that creates even a more darker place, Back to the, what I said earlier, I have a little, my, I have my closet, a skeleton, something that you should not know, I don't want to know about, no one should want to know about. And that's what happens, that becomes our life, to the point we carry and live with it. We live with it as if it's like compartmentalized, and we can function on other areas, and maybe we can, some of us have mastered the art of compartmentalizing. But to suggest that it just remains completely passive, and, and ineffectual, does not impact our lives, is not correct. Those corners, those darkness, do affect our lives. So here comes the big question. However, the, whatever the cause is, however the circumstances that led to it, what is this, how do, we, what's, how do we dissect the anatomy of this abyss? How do we take it apart, and what exactly is it? So psychologists of all schools of thought have attempted to do this over the years. What is this darker place? It's somewhat easier to talk about happiness, light, positive experiences, because we're more comfortable with it, and therefore easier to talk about, and we can identify with more. It's harder to talk about the darker places because of the fears involved, and we avoid wanting to go there. But what exactly, how do we understand it? So in the Kabbalistic literature, and expounded upon, elaborated upon Hasidic literature, talk about this dark and light interaction from the beginning of time, from the beginning when the Bible says that the world, earth was covered in darkness. And then God said, let there be light. There's a whole discussion, what was there before there was light? Where was the light? So it says the light and the darkness were bravuvia, they were all mixed together like a snowball effect. And then they were separated. God separated the light from the dark. And the light he called day, and the dark he called night. These verses, though sounding simplistic, actually is the essence when we talk about the darkness and the light of our lives, psychologically, st psychological states of clarity versus confusion. 
of glory and nobility versus shame and inability, these are forms, forces of darkness and light within our lives. When we say the prince of darkness or the dark forces or the dark side, we're referring to that, that those, those more negative elements. And when we talk about light, we're talking about the brighter elements. And interestingly, they both come together. There is no such thing as a full day without day and night. Which tells us something tremendous. That part of the experience of life is that there will be a night. And night leads to day, and day leads to night. So the way to sum up one of the ways this is explained, and I'm citing now specifically a text from the, the, the classic great discourse called Ayin Beis. Ayin Beis is short for Ayin Beis is 72 in Hebrew. For the year 5672, which is 117 years ago, um, five, 107 years ago, I'm sorry, 107 years ago in the, ni- in the year, that with the 5672 is the equivalent of 1912. So now we're in 2018, ending 2018, when a discourse, a magnum opus, was delivered by Rabbi Sholem Dovber, Schneerson of Lubavitch, the fifth Chabad Rebbe. Magnum opus, thousands of pages. And in it he has a long essays and discussion on the nature of light and dark. In our personal lives, concealment and revelation. All the way tracing it back to its source, original source, of what Darizal calls, Darizal, the great classic 15th century Kabbalist, um, calls the Tzimtzum Harishan, the first concealment, sometimes called Tzimtzum Agod, the great concealment. The first step that allows existence to become an independent entity from its higher state of higher divine consciousness, which consumed everything, not in time, conceptual time. And then came this Simpson. The classic example is that in any situation of educator, parent, communication, relationship, you need to leave space for another. If you occupy the whole space with your ego, with your personality, with your consciousness, there won't be room for another consciousness. So this leaves room for the first time, a first element of darkness. But it's not a darkness as an end in itself. It's the teacher concealing his brilliance so the student can emerge. It's the parent bending down and giving the child space to grow and develop as an independent individual. So on one hand, yes, it's a certain element of concealment and restraint. On the other hand, it's necessary for any relationship. Where does it become a distortion if we misunderstand this concealment or this Restraint as like leaving, as disappearing. There's no disappearing. It's the one that loves you is giving you space. Don't, 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 don't um, confuse that with abandonment. But sometimes we do. And that's when darkness becomes a far more foreboding and haunting force. When we confuse a momentary concealment or a temporary restraint and think it's an end in itself. Now, interestingly, what take, what, where do you exert more energy? When you give off light, when you transmit an idea, or when you exercise restraint? For someone who has what to transmit, has much to give, it takes more effort to press the brakes 
than to press the gas. Because to withhold something that you have on, your t- on the tip of your tongue or in your thoughts, and you have what to say, to withhold that in order to allow the student to develop and to come to it on their own takes more strength. So concealment actually has more power than revelation. So in truth, since the concealment is only there in order to bring the revelation, and that concealment has more power, so actually the concealment can bring you an energy that's even stronger than anything that's being revealed. But it has to come in stages. So if you were to dissect the anatomy of darkness, even the darkest darkness, all the way in its root, yes, it's a restraint, it's withholding. So for a moment there's a vacuum, there's a space. But the space is there only for a deeper experience. When does it become a darkness that becomes powerful, negative energy, that becomes a source of shame, source of ugliness, those corners we don't want to talk about, those shadows, is when we misunderstand completely that darkness and we think it's an end in itself. So the black hole in physics, predicted by Einstein, has more power than a regular star. The power is so strong, the gravitational power of a black hole is so strong, it doesn't even allow light to escape. Stars shine. This black hole does not shine because light can't even escape. So how do we know the black hole is there when we can't see it? We see its effect on, our, on surrounding bodies. We see it causes, changes thing, the orbit of different planetary um, bodies or celestial bodies or asteroids or whatever it is that may go close in that path. So you realize it's like a magnet. You don't see the magnet, but you see it exerting a pull or a repulsion. So you know there's a force. That force is extremely deep, but it's imploding instead of exploding. Instead of going outward, it's going inward. So when you see a person, for example, that's shy, or a person who is very withdrawn and conceals more than they reveal, for all you know, they have even more power than the people that speak. Because they need to put, exert a lot of energy not to express themselves. Ask people who are afraid of public speaking or afraid in general to be among others. And the fear that grips them literally freezes them, paralyzes them. And you realize their this intensity of that strength is far more than people who go and are very social and very extroverted and able to interact. They exert energy too. They exude a lot of energy. But the energy of the shame, the energy of the fear, the energy of needing to hide and finding excuses is often much stronger than the energy to exude. So the key thing to remember is that there's energy there. The only thing is the energy is working against you, it's working backwards. Its root is actually a healthy energy. It's the, health, the energy of restraint, of discipline, of not flooding someone and, and suffocating them with your love, even with all the good intentions in mind knowing how to step back, knowing how to give, but also how to conceal, how to give and allow the person to come to certain conclusions on their own. That's a real art, especially for someone that has what to say. The person has all the answers and they come to you for an answer, a person you love. Sometimes it's better just to say one or two words and let them discover the answer. Now, it's not playing a game. It's letting them to own it. Sometimes they need to come to the answer, and the answer, they're not ready to hear the answer today. For whatever reason, immaturity, ego, may not appreciate it. So the art of restraint is an art of concealment, but 
It's a concealment that has a very healthy purpose in mind. The distortion comes when that concealment suddenly becomes an end in itself. And then it's a lonely force, one of the most lonely, one of the most devastating existential loneliness, where you feel you're alone in your little place. And nobody could understand you. And nobody can feel your pain. And no one will ever understand. And that lonely place can be just a place where we suffer silently. Or we can act out in ways that cause us to be even more dark. And say like, I do things that I don't want to tell anyone. I don't even want to tell myself. And it makes you feel uglier and more disgusting in your own eyes. And more shame and it becomes a vicious cycle. Like I mentioned before, a whirlpool. Quicksand that just feeds on itself. A vicious cycle. Feeding on itself, feeding on itself. And that's where darkness becomes more, develop, more, uh, more exacerbated and more exacerbated to the point is that we could get trapped in the real dark side. And one of the signs of that is that when you lose control over your own choices, which means that you have given up, either you're dependent on a substance, on a person, on action, on behavior. Very often, again, sexual, could it be of other forces, it could be gambling, it could be drugs, alcohol, it could be psychological games and psychological different behaviors, passive, aggressive, all the different sadomachistic and all the different things that we are able to, unfortunately, impose on ourselves. And then comes a point, I'm going, taking, I'm going to the farthest side, and then we'll go back to, as I said, the more average situation, the more relevant to most of us, where you can literally go to such a dark place that God help us, where we feel hopeless, helpless, to the point we may not even feel helpless, we're just completely captured by that darkness. I remember reading David Carr's book, The Night of the Gun. He was a New York Times journalist. He died a few years ago. Unbelievably devastating book. He writes about his own young years, before he came out of it, how he was a crack addict, and that controlled his life. But one scene, just so devastating, one scene where he finally meets a woman who's also a crack addict, they decide to get married, and they have two children. They have one child, then another child. But they have not given up their addictions. And they're convinced, they minimize, that they no problem, they can be parents, everything is fine. One day, just to make a long story short, Mr. Carr, David Carr, he's alone with the children, he's responsible for them, and he has this craving, he needs to get his, his hit. So he goes to one of these crack houses with the children. It was a very cold day, so he left the car outside running, left the heat on, and the two children bundled up in blankets. He's going in, and his mind's going for 15 minutes, he'll be back. Well, 15 minutes, once you're in the crack, it's not 15 minutes, it was a few hours stumbles out of the crack house, does not even know where he's at. Then he sees the car. I mean, he remembers, and he suddenly remembers his children. And he runs over to the car. It's all steamed up. And the worst thoughts came to him. He was still in a daze, in a stupor, but he did have enough instinct. And he said, oh, God Almighty, what did I do to my children? He opens up the door, expecting the worst. And he sees the two children bundled up, breathing, asleep. 
And he had this wake-up call because he suddenly realized how deep into the hole, dark hole, the black hole, he fell. His children, his own children, his own flesh and blood. What could have happened would have been the worst. And God showed him grace. To his credit, he didn't repeat it. He didn't go back into denial. He actually acted on it and changed his ways. But when you read it, it like makes your heart beat. You know, you know what happened here? I mean, you're ready for the worst. That's a dark side, a very dark side. He hit rock bottom. As I said to his credit, he began the upturn. Rehabilitated himself, became a writer, wrote a book about it, became an excellent writer in the New York Times, writing articles on this topic and many other topics. Just one example of many. You know, when you read this, it breaks your heart. It breaks your heart because how human beings can literally bring upon themselves the worst destructive behavior. This was not from outside. No one did it to him. This was not a holocaust perpetrated by the Nazis. Perpetrated by yourself, on yourself, the worst type of holocaust. That's how darkness can be, how powerful it can be. All originating with a good intention, the intention of being a separate entity. But imagine when it evolves and it's not checked, what it can turn into? Complete, utter, dead end. But it's never a dead end. Because there's a spark even in a black hole. There's light everywhere. The light is inverted. It's directed inward. And very unfortunately, sometimes you need to crack it open. Like you need to crack open a nut. What cracks open a nut? A lot of pressure. You need to be cracked. Because as long as life seems to be going fine, he was cracked in this case. Something happened. I don't just mean the crack house. It's a play of words. His personality, he suddenly realized how destructive he could be. And that did something. Our hope is that we need to no need to wait to hit rock bottom. That we can find that there is in every dark place, because it originates from the place of light and dark, that really are part of one heart larger, whole, larger entity, that just like the light prepares for the darkness because it needs to go through a restraint and concealment in order to be transmitted to another, the secret to relationships, the space needed, so there needs to be a restraint and a concealment, Every concealment is not an end in itself. It can appear that way if you get trapped in it, but there's always a light. There's always somewhere a light. As I said, more often than not, it comes out when you hit the rock bottom and you realize you're not in control. You realize you've got to get out of here, of this place. Or it could happen sometimes through grace, through good blessings, or through friends, or somebody that helps throw you a rope. But there's always a light that's vital to remember. Because one of the worst things is you feel that there's no hope anymore. That's exactly like a black, you don't feel there's light anymore. It's all been sucked away from you, or so you think. Now to take this to more to the more average scenario, I don't like to use the word average scenario because actually not a good expression, but I mean for most of us that have not necessarily fallen to such a dark hole. We all have our dark corners, we have our dark spots. But there too, even more so, because it's not really gone that far, know that it's not just something you have to accept, that I have skeleton in my closet, that I have a dark place, an ugly place I go to when I'm in despair, when I'm desperate, when I'm lonely, just to pleasure myself, 
or in some way to escape or to numb myself. That's not the end of the story. You need to know that that darkness, even though it may have come from bad places, things that were done to you or things that were traumatizing or violating or other experiences of projection of insecurities and fears, as I mentioned earlier, or whatever else that causes it, now that you have it, recognize its energy. You're investing energy there. And that's why it exerts energy over you. It haunts you. And at times it can be very debilitating, even if we compartmentalize. Because it's a part of us, and sometimes we think it's the real part of us. The rest we think, it's not the real me. I project, look like a whole happy-go-lucky, and everything seems to be going. The real me is that dark, ugly one. There's energy in that. The energy of that loneliness, the energy of what you do to try to numb it, how you act out, the energy of the shame, the energy of the secret, of concealing it. That takes energy. So don't think there's no energy there. It's just energy going in the wrong place, in the wrong direction. So the question is, how do we tap that in? How do we get that energy out of the, the, the tough nut that it's locked in, the dark place, that skeleton? So the first step is you have to know that there is that energy, awareness. Next thing you need to know is that every type of energy can be harnessed. How do you harness such negative energy? One of the ways is, like in a case where a person has gone, I think of the David Carr case or situation, he wrote a book. He writes about it, helping others. So he's taken the energy that he used for so many years to numb himself and now using to explain what happened so others give others hope and direction and confidence that they too can take the journey to, to, to a brighter place. That's one way. You have certain unique experiences. You can identify with people in that place. Someone that has, had that, has that dark side can talk to someone else with the dark side and say, here's what I've learned. So what you're doing is you're taking the same energy, but you're using it for a positive experience. Another way is the mere fact that it can catapult you to places that if you didn't have that dark, ugly side and didn't have that shame, you wouldn't be that motivated. Things are going fine. Here you have an energy that you do not want. And when you know that you can get through it and get out of it, that itself becomes a force that is like a springboard that catapults you to another place. So, so, so the, in some, basically that energy has ways to tap into it. But you can't just do it easily because the energy is really going the other direction, inward, imploding, and causing more despair and more darkness. That is why we must, in most cases, have the help of others, someone you can speak to. You speak to someone, you break the secret, you break the silence. What are you doing when you break the silence? You're breaking the darkness. Darkness loves, thrives in darkness. Secrets thrive in secrets. That's not just a redundant statement. That's the breeding ground. The breeding ground for all toxins, for all maggots, spiritual, psychological, emotional, and spiritual maggots, is when the light is not shining. You look, you ever see a stone, you pick up a stone, a dark, and I believe the dark, moist places where you see, then the light shines, everyone starts running in all directions. So breaking the secret is breaking the darkness. It's breaking the hole that it has on you. And once you break that, light begins to seep in. 
you realize that, you know what? Breaking the secret did not destroy me. The person doesn't look at me like, an, like, like horrible. Many people say, if you only knew this, you would never talk to me again. You would never respect me again. That fear is very powerful. And then when you share it with someone that, that you can trust, that's non-judgmental, and that's kind and gentle, you discover, you know what? I shared it, and the person does not look down at me. They don't look at me differently. Many people say, if I share this, I will never be seen the same way. They'll never respect me once they hear this dark side of my life. So breaking that sound, not to everyone, to someone you can trust, is a tremendous healing element. It's literally like an infection that's been festering, and you open up some fresh air, that's when it begins to heal. That's when it begins to evaporate. That when it begins to be exposed to fresh air, leads a person to the next stage. Now, it may have to be done gradually. Like, you know, someone's been breathing toxins, so you open up a, fresh, a window, fresh air, sometimes you cough. So you have to do it gradually, but slowly, slowly, we free ourselves. And the greatest tool of all in this regard is faith and trust, which is like a rope that you hold onto that gives you the strength to get out of your own subjective traps, including the fears of being continuously sucked in by this dark hole, by this dark side. So prayer, faith, trust in the one above, knowing that God gave you life and gave you light, and even the darkness originates from there. It says, He shaped light and created the darkness, because light has a shape. Darkness is, is void, is shapeless. But he created darkness and created therefore the power to get through it all and recognize that day and night are two halves of one coin. So that faith and belief, the trust in others and breaking the silence, the ability then to take the negative energy and direct it toward positive energy, the things you've learned from your shame, the things you've learned from your loneliness, the things you've learned from your dark side, all become assets that can be turned into tremendous tools of growth, light, and illumination. Does it come easily? May not, may not come so easily, but you always start with one step. The first step is to realize there is no such thing as total despair, that it's, you hit a dead end, you're locked, you're trapped. It's dark forever in this place. No, it's not. It can be transformed. And that's why you have an expression in the Zohar, in the classic text, mystical text, that says, for those special ones that can transform darkness into light and bitterness into sweet, they have the ability to enter a certain unique realm, spiritual realm. Man de manchen, those that transform darkness to light. What does darkness to light mean? Is it dark, is it light? But remember, darkness... His intention is light. So transforming the, the, me, the means to the end, transforming the means of concealment and restraint in order to bring deeper light is a total transformation because that's the purpose of the darkness in the first place. So even when it gets so dark out there, it's, you know, it's, um, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. Even when it gets so dark that you can't see light, you know, just look at next the night and see. Wait, wait long enough and the dawn breaks. That's in the natural cycle. Psychologically and emotionally is the same thing. There is a dawn that will break. 
there is a light there. But here you need some effort. You can't just say, I look at the clock and the dawn will break, a dawn break. When the sun begins to rise. Here we need to bring in the sun. We need to bring in the dawn and that's our attitude. Our confidence, our trust in God, our trust in an individual that we can speak to. And ultimately feeding your soul, feeding the soulful, feeding light into the parts of you that are bright also helps dispel darkness. So there's two sides to this. One is to bring light, which is becoming aware of your soul, becoming aware of your strengths, becoming aware of your positive qualities. And and that brings light that dispels darkness. And then there's the second half, which means also you're occupied with it so you don't have the time to dwell so much on the dark. But even when you do have that dark side, that too can be a catapult, can be a, can be a driving force, a motivating force to lead you to even a deeper form of light. So really it's a multi-pronged attack from many different directions is the way out, the way to come back from the dark side. It's knowing that the dark side is not the controlling force of life. That ultimately you have the ability because within that darkness there's light Outside of that darkness, there's light, and it's all there to help you as tools and resources to get that, tap into it, dispel the darkness, and then tap into it and transform it to something that's positive. And we all have this ability. But you cannot just go do it alone. It's very, very difficult to do that. Because when you're alone, you only see what you see. The second your friend, your mentor, can see more than you can see. It's just like someone saying, you know, it's dark outside now. I don't think it's ever going to be bright and light. And someone say, you know what? I was around last night and the dawn did break. I also traveled to another part of the world that the sun here has set, but another part of the world the sun is always shining. And you say, really? Tell me about it. And they tell you about it. What do you learn from that? You learn that someone who has a more broader objective picture and not just someone who's living in the moment and only sees the dark and gives up can help you actually see a bigger perspective. It's like we're climbing up on the mountain and you suddenly see one second. There's dark and the other half of dark is light. Day and night. Day and night turn into a 24-hour cycle. A continuous cycle. No different than any other cycle in life, whether it's the heartbeat or the breath or the cycles of the ebbs and flows, cycles of the moon, the dark side of the moon. The moon goes through its cycles First quarter, the, mid, the full moon, the third quarter, the new moon, and just about when it gets extinguished and seems to disappear, a new moon. We call it a new moon. That's why in Hebrew, the, month, the word for month is chodesh. Chodesh comes from the word chidush, new. Because the new moon, why is it a new moon? We know the moon has not been born then, has not changed. The moon is always full, actually, when it's facing the sun. But the earth, the angle to earth is not. Because it's a full moon also in its angle that it's shining to us. So your dark side in you may have a lot of light, but it's not shining to you. You're not aware of it. There are opinions also that the dark side is always dark. But regardless, you don't see it. And then you come to realize, no, there's light as well there. And I can tap into it. So though it's on one hand difficult to speak about this topic, because when you start personalizing, it can be very uh, overwhelming we start thinking about these darker sides, but it's better 
even though it's difficult to speak, it's more difficult not to speak. Because these are realities on the ground. And I truly find that when you're able to tackle and face our darker sides, we become stronger people. It always struck me that when I heard people always talk about the good things and the light and all the positive, obviously we have to always focus on the positive. But if you never hear someone addressing some of the darker parts in us, you almost feel like, you know what, they're only covering the easy part, the part that everybody's comfortable with. That's nice. It's nice to celebrate. But what about these lonely nights? What about these lonely moments? What about these moments when we feel all alone and very not good about ourselves and even ugly and even disgusting? How would anybody talk about that? And then when you open up these texts, the mystical texts, I'm citing some of them, you suddenly realize they talk about it directly with a positive message. The goal, of course, is to transform, not to just acknowledge it and validate darkness. It's not the point to say, okay, great, we're all depressed. The point is to address it, take the bull by the horns and not be afraid of darkness. We're not afraid, we can then do something with it because fear does not help the situation. So when you think about it, it's like um, uh, you talk about when Moses, for the first time, meets God. We'll be reading about it in the coming chapters. It's a very moving narrative where he's in the wilderness, he's grazing sheep, and then he sees from a distance a sight, a strange sight. What is he comes closer, he sees a snet, a thorn bush. A fire is burning, but the snet, the bush is not being consumed. And he wonders why. And that's the first time God appears to him choosing him to be the leader that would take the Jews out of where the darkest place at the time, the Egyptian slavery, the Egyptian bondage, the Egyptian captivity. Darkness, real slavery, dark, dark, dark. To the point that it says Pharaoh was the prince of darkness. Moses later would be afraid to enter, tremble to enter, till God said, come with me, I'll go with you. I've talked about this a number of times. But I want to touch upon one point the Medrash says, commentary says, why a snap? Why did God choose a thorn bush? You're coming to appear to Moses and going to tell him good news. As though the Jews are suffering, I'm sending you to be their savior as my messenger to let my people go, to serve me. So God should have appeared in a beautiful bush, a beautiful tree, an apple tree. Why a thorn bush? So the answer is God anticipated Moses saying, Ah, you appeared to me in beauty. Great, you're a God of beauty. But we're dealing here with the darkest of the dark, with a holocaust going on, with a black hole, with a dark side, with dark sorcery forces of Pharaoh and his sorcerers. So you appear to me in a beautiful bush, and beauty, I know I can find you. But the Jewish people are going to ask me, does God also found in darkness, or is he only found in light? So God, anticipating and preempting the question, appears in a thorn bush and says, I'm here, even in the thorns even in the painful parts of life, even in the lonely thornbush, the lowly and lonely thornbush that does not bear fruit, that is a product of the wilderness, of the dry and arid and hostile universe, uh, wilderness, even there I appear. Because I'm not just a God of light, I'm a God within the darkness too. And you can find me in the darkness. And you can tell the people that I'm sending you in their darkest place, in the darkest part of history and their lives, and there's a way out. And we will be redeemed. You will be redeemed. And what happens? That's exactly what happens.
though we've gone through different darknesses in our lives, there is a light. We don't always understand why the darkness. That's why Moses later tells God, why are you doing evil to these people? But the result, the end, the end story is that with all the pain, with all the suffering and deaths and losses, we came out. We've prevailed. That's a tremendous story. Thousands of years of history. So it teaches us there is a light. The fact that we don't always understand it, the fact that we're very uncomfortable, that we're more than uncomfortable, unpleasant, and it's, as I said, foreboding and overwhelming, fine, we understand that. But this doesn't mean that we don't forge ahead with a complete belief that the light will emerge, that there is light in there somewhere, and we could release it and harness it toward the good. So my friends, may we all be blessed that there should only be light in your life. But there is a night that comes after the day. So when there's darkness, may it be of the minimal sort. And even that, to recognize that it's only there in order to bring a deeper light. You have the power. We help each other. We support each other. Because every one of us has our times where we're a little down, but then you have a partner or partners, and they're a little up then, so they help carry us then. And vice versa, when they're a little down, we help carry them. That's why we need each other. And that, as I said at the outset, is really the central mission of the Meaningful Life Center. And myself, dedicated completely to keep this cycle, to connect us all, to realize we all complement each other, we all need each other. We're all indispensable, and we all are dependent on each other. And we have individuality with our own voice. At the same time, we all need each other's voices. So it's an honor and pleasure to be part of this intersection, to part of this connection, and to continue and hopefully create a ripple effect that will ripple across the universe and across the globe and across all the cosmos, all the way to the highest levels, and bring us to the day when light and darkness will be transformed. There will be the transformation of darkness to light, and then discover even a deeper light that comes from that darkness. We're here every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. We welcome your comments, your feedback, sharing. Please do all that. We're available. We're there. Meaningfullife.com is our website, social media, all the different channels and platforms. Stay in touch. And please, anyway, anything we can do for you, please don't hesitate to call upon us. And I ask you also in turn, without any conditions, no strings attached, we help no matter what, that please, our programs, many of them are free to help us grow, expand, reach more people, create more, more materials to help us with a special end-of-the-year contribution and donation. You can easily do that at MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship or slash donate. You could sponsor in the memory or honor of a loved one or just make a regular donation. I really appreciate that. Excellent time to do so in this holiday season as we conclude as the curtain comes down of 2018. Everyone have a very blessed, illuminating week. And even the darkness should also bring you much great light. Thank you so much.